All right. I do want to begin by simply again saying how proud I was to hear how things had gone while I was away in Louisville at the Emmanuel Network Summit. You all gathered, you worshipped, you had discipleship classes, you sang, you prayed, the word was faithfully preached, you went home, and I wasn't here. And sometimes it's important for me to be reminded that I am expendable, and it's important for you to be reminded that Pastor Chad is expendable, that it's not Pastor Chad who builds College Street Baptist Church, it's the Lord Jesus who says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I was also just overwhelmed with thankfulness uh, for our brother Nathan, and how faithful he was to make plain the word, and to lay it out for us, and he has a spiritual gift for teaching and preaching. And I think it behooves us to think about what kind of concrete steps we need to take as a church to enable him to better utilize those gifts for the benefit of this body. Well, it gives me great pleasure to say once more to College Street, why don't you turn with me to 1 Samuel. And let's turn to chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, the, I believe the Pew Bible we will be on page 314. And I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there so you can follow along with us. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Cutting Corners, which as we read the story, you will realize is kind of a tongue-in-cheek, goofy sort of pun. I'm that kind of person. I enjoy those kinds of things. Some of you don't. My wife does not enjoy those kinds of things. <laughs> but I also think that cutting corners describes a specific temptation that David faces in today's story. Now, when we talk about cutting corners, we usually mean something to the effect of taking shortcuts in a way that ends up cheapening the end product. It sometimes means breaking laws, relaxing standards, ignoring your conscience, or just plain cheating. Well, this morning, when David has the opportunity to take a shortcut to maybe cut short his wilderness wandering, to take matters into his own hands, to fudge a few things in order to take the kingdom by force, we're faced with the question, will David cut corners? Or will he trust in the Lord? And the natural question that follows for each of us is the same. What about us? Can you trust God's plan wherever he may have you this morning? Well, I hope that you've already found 1 Samuel chapter 24. And let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. 
Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he, not, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Amen. You may be seated. On Wednesday night, I was sitting in my living room during small group, and Rebecca Benson was sitting there and had, was talking about how she had begun to read her Bible while she was at the YMCA exercising on a daily basis, and had started rereading through the story of 1 Samuel in order to kind of reacquaint herself with everything 
that we had learned up to this point. And she was explaining how she had actually read ahead into this passage and this really hard question that arose in her mind, especially with regards to her circumstances at her workplace. How do you not seek revenge on your enemies? How do you not fight back? And she was sharing this question with us and then Heather, sitting opposite of her, answers and says, well, we, we have to trust the Lord. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And we have to believe that one day, all the things that we've suffered, God will one day call to account and there will be justice in this universe. And uh, basically, these two ladies were doing me the favor of writing my sermon for me this morning. So thank you very much. <laughs> How do we resist the desire to get even? When we are sinned against, whether by a brother, kids, a sister, by a husband, a wife, by a boss or a co-worker, when they unintentionally hurt us, or even worse, they intentionally pursue us in order to bring us harm and to destroy us. How do we resist the temptation? Especially when the opportunity presents itself and it is ripe and ready for us to get them back in a major way. Well, as we look at David's incredible restraint this morning in 1 Samuel 24, we see him exhibit three things. Number one, he heeds the Spirit's conviction. He heeds the Spirit's conviction. Secondly, he entrusts his case to the Lord. And thirdly, he pities his enemy. David he heeds the Spirit's conviction. He entrusts his case to the Lord and he pities his enemy. Well, I hope that you, as I was reading, understood what was going on in this story. There's some euphemisms that are used. Uh, but essentially, David encounters a very strong urge to kill Saul while he is on the toilet. And I must say, having potty trained three children, and now beginning with a fourth one, I very much identify with that feeling. How did those odd circumstances come together for David in chapter 24? Well, if you remember from two weeks ago, David and his men were fleeing from Saul in the wilderness. Saul was pursuing him. In fact, he was right on the verge of capturing him. The two of them were on paths that went around the mountain and were getting ready to converge on the other side and just at the moment when Saul was about to encounter David a message comes hey Saul while you're playing this fun game of cat and mouse the Philistines are attacking your kingdom and so he's forced to turn back David lives to fight another day Saul has to go back and fight the Philistines However, as soon as that battle is over, what's Saul right back at again? He's right back into the wilderness chasing after David. He went right back to number one priority on his kingly agenda, which is to chase his son-in-law to the ends of the earth. 
until he can run a spear through his heart. That is the most important thing to do in my kingdom. So, verse 2 tells us, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Verse 3, And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to reveal, relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Now who here has been hiking or camping before? So you all know that out in the forest there are no porta johns. At least if you've actually been real camping before. There are no potties in the wilderness. So Saul needs to go, you know, find some privacy so to speak. And uh, he goes into a cave, which is sort of nature's porta potty. And, uh, but the irony of the situation is Saul is seeking privacy here, and he goes into the one cave in all of Israel where there are 601 men hiding. David and all of his men are hiding in the recesses of this cave. That's a pretty big porta john. And so you can picture David and his men, and shh, shh, someone's coming. Wait, is that Saul? What is he doing in here? What is that smell? Is he? Oh my goodness, David, it's perfect. Now is your chance. Verse 4. And the minute David said to him, here is the day, the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Have you ever been in a public restroom where uh, you realize too late that the door lock doesn't work? And you spend the whole time just trying to hurry through and hoping that nobody comes barging in. It's the most vulnerable position that anyone, any human being could be in in the world. And here, the stall door just swings wide open to David. And there inside is Saul crouched in the most vulnerable position a human being can find himself. But just because the door is open doesn't mean it's right for David to walk through. F.B. Meyer writes, Never forget that opportunity does not make a wrong thing right. Our actions must not be determined by the opening of the door of circumstance, but by conscience, faith, obedience, and the high sense of Christian honor. What more perfect circumstance could David have asked the Lord to serve up to him? Here is the man who's trying to kill him and pursuing him to the ends of the earth. He's completely disarmed, vulnerable. All of his men are whispering to him, kill him, kill him, kill him, go kill him, David, kill him. It's the perfect chance to get back at Saul. What poetic justice to slay his enemy while he's seated on the royal throne. What are the chances that of all the caves in Israel, Saul would come into this one? And he would come in here to use the restroom. Surely, David, this must be the time. The door is open. Seize the moment. What is it that keeps David from sinning in that moment? Because it would have been sin. What 
kept David from listening to the urging of his men? Well, number one, David heeded, listened to the Spirit's conviction. Listen to verse 5 again. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Just just for sake of contrast, let's think back two chapters to chapter 22, where Saul authorized a non-Israelite, Doeg the Edomite, to slay 80 priests who were innocent, anointed men who belonged to the Lord. Saul said, kill them all. And then he let that man's rage boil and spill through the entire city of Nob, putting every man, woman, child, infant, sheep, cow in the town to the edge of the sword. And Saul does not experience so much as an ounce of guilt or shame. Here in chapter 24, David trims a tiny little corner off of Saul's robe. Saul, the man who is guilty, guilty, guilty. And immediately he is consumed with conviction in his heart. Why? Well, we already know why, because David is filled with the Spirit of God, and Saul is not. John chapter 16, Jesus tells us that when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It's the Spirit's job. That's why He's in there. It's to bring conviction, to pierce our hearts the moment that we are experiencing temptation to sin. And I wonder this morning, as you look at these two men, which you identify better with. Are you more like Saul, able to plunge headlong into sin, doing violence to others, using your words, your actions to destroy other people, and never feeling a sense of conviction, indulging your sinful passions and desires without any sense of shame? Or are you like David when even even the thought of going down the road of temptation brings immediate conviction to your heart? The conviction of the Spirit is meant to restrain us, is meant to keep us back from going down the path of sin. Look at verse 6. David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. The Lord forbid, David says, God himself, please put yourself in the way. Prevent me from heading down this path from even lifting so much as a finger against this man. And the thing is, the Lord has, by His Spirit, bringing conviction to pierce David's heart. He is interposing Himself, preventing David from going down a road of sin and temptation. Brothers and sisters, we can avoid much heartache and destruction and discipline in our lives if we will simply follow David's example and heed 
the Spirit's conviction. Listen when the Spirit is speaking to you and saying, don't do that. Don't go down that road. Don't act that way. Don't say that thing. The moment David feels conviction, the moment he realizes the thing he's about to do is sinful, his immediate response is, Lord forbid, far be it, far, 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 put that thing far away from me. I don't want to be near it at all. How many of us, when we begin to experience conviction, instead say, well, can't I just get a little bit closer and still not sin? I won't say anything. I'll just listen while the ladies at work gossip. The, the commercial with the scantily clad model came on on its own. I, I'll, just, I'll just patiently bear with it until it's over. Huh? This is my chance to get back at my coworker for all of his backstabbing. I just, I just want a little piece of the corner. I just want to know what revenge tastes like. No, 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 no. We want to be so tender-hearted so that the moment the Spirit begins to bring conviction, we are turned back from sin. Even the beginnings of temptation, even just cutting one little corner off brings immediate piercing to our hearts. Number one, heed the Spirit's conviction. Listen to Him. He is God's gift to you, brothers and sisters, to keep you from sin and to lead you into the paths of righteousness. Let us heed the Spirit's conviction. The second thing, and what consumes most of David's words as he exchanges a conversation with Saul, is that David entrusted his case to the Lord. Number two, entrust your case to the Lord. So Saul makes his way out of the cave. David follows him out and he shouts, Hey, king! And when Saul turns around, David bows on the ground and pays homage to the king. David says, I'm not trying to kill you. I was never trying to kill you. And that's obvious here because I've just had a chance to kill you while you were reading your newspaper on the john, and I didn't do it. And here's the proof, verse 11. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog. After a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me. From your hand. We see it there over and over again. He reiterates, I am not going to take this matter into my own hands. This is up to the Lord. He's going to have to act as judge. He's going to have to defend me. He's going to have to vindicate me because I am entrusting my case to the Lord. And this takes, first of all, 
humility on David's part. It was a dangerous thing for David to come out of that cave. The last time that Saul laid eyes on him, he tried to run him through with a spear. And yet David comes out of the cave and he bows himself to the ground and addresses the king with the words, My Lord the King. He calls him my father. These are terms of respect and honor. And then verse 14, he says, Who are you chasing after anyways? Who are you pursuing? After a dead dog, after a flea. I'm nothing. I'm less than nothing. A dead dog, a mite, a flea. Why would the king even bother himself with someone as lowly as me? David doesn't stick up for himself. He doesn't seek to vindicate himself, his motives, or his actions. He entrusts his case to the Lord and he demonstrates great humility. It takes humility, not when you're faced with your enemy to try to prove that you're right. And to justify yourself. But instead to trust that one day the Lord will do all of that for you on your behalf. But it also took patience. Humility and patience. David refuses to take the kingdom by force. I'm not going to get my hands dirty in this. I'm not going to stretch out my hand or get involved. Even though everything in him and all of his men and all of his circumstances were shouting, this is the easy way out. Cut a corner. God has already promised you the kingdom. Just take it. Kill Saul. Let's be over with it and you can be the king. Friends, aren't these the words of Satan himself? Don't trust God. Trust in your own hand. The fruit's right there. Just take it. Just take it for yourself. You know you want it. Realize your destiny. Entrusting your case to the Lord takes patience. As David saw Saul leave that cave alive, it would mean many more years for him in the wilderness. Patience. We have an example in the book of Genesis. Do you remember the story? God promises Abraham that he's going to have a son. Five years go by, no son. Ten years go by, no son. And so what does Sarah, his wife, and Abraham decide to do? Well, Abraham, I think you just need to take matters into your own hands. Here's my servant girl. Have a child with her. We all know the heartache that that caused Just cut a corner, Abraham. If only he had been patient. Did the Lord provide a son through his wife, Sarah? You bet he did. Abraham did not have the patience to entrust his cause to the Lord. God will keep his promises. God will vindicate his people one day. The Lord is trustworthy if we can just be patient. When we try to get revenge or to prove we are right, we are acting out the lie that God will not uphold righteousness in His kingdom. That justice will not be served. That wrong will not be punished. So do you know what? I have to do it myself. But in that cave, David withheld his hand and did not fall into sin because he was patient and willing to entrust his case 
to the Lord and believed that one day God would judge him righteous and Saul in sin. The Lord would vindicate him one day, but maybe not today and maybe not tomorrow. So will you and I have the patience to wait on the Lord and to entrust our cause to him? Peter tells us, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So here's the question, brothers and sisters. Do you and I trust the Lord to take care of it, whatever it may be? Or do you need to step in and help him out? Do you need to say something? Or can you just not? That's the amazing thing about this story. David just didn't do anything. And that's what took the greatest strength and courage on his part was to just not act. It's actually his not doing something that's so astounding. He will not let God off the hook. He will not do anything to help God keep his promise. He says, I'm not going to get my hands into this. It's the Lord's job and he's going to have to take care of it. The Lord is going to have to vindicate me. He's going to have to act as judge. And you know, we see this example supremely in Jesus Christ when he was being falsely arrested, falsely accused by false witnesses, falsely beaten, falsely mocked, falsely slandered, and hung on a cross. Did Jesus open his mouth even once? Did he say, no, that's not true. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. That's not who I am. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Can you and I do that? Can we have that kind of trust in the Lord? For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued doing what? Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is what David did. This is what our Lord Jesus did. This is what we must do as well. Entrust your cause to the Lord. So David heeded the Spirit's conviction. He entrusted his case to the Lord. And lastly, he looked with pity on his enemies. The third thing that David's example encourages us to do is to take pity on your enemies. As David recounts to Saul what was going on in his own heart and mind while he was in the cave considering whether to kill Saul, verse 10 he says, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I spared you. And the word there has the sense of I took pity on you. 
It was David's pity that led him to spare Saul. And friends, as David looked with pity on the greatest enemy that walked the face of the earth into the face of Saul and was able to have pity, we see the face of Jesus Christ who commanded us, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We show ourselves to be sons and daughters of God whenever we have the same heart of compassion He does for His enemies. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. But why? Why would David, seeing Saul in all of his vulnerability, be moved to pity? Well, I think David realized how pitiful it must be for a man to fight an impossible battle. It's Saul with 3,000 chosen men against David and his little ragtag bunch. But do you know what? Do you know who's on David's side? The Lord. This is an impossible battle that Saul is fighting. What a pitiable human being to know And it comes out of Saul. Whenever David confronts him, it just pours out of Saul's heart. He knows he's going to lose. He knows he's going to lose the kingdom. How pitiful to know that in all of your striving, no matter what you do, you will at the end lose. Think of the hopelessness of that life. The rage, the hate, the anger that must consume the deepest, darkest moments of that person's uh, life who is at war with the God of the universe and refuses to relent and knows this can only end one way. By being crushed under the heel of the Almighty King of Heaven. To die under His wrath, that is what Saul is afraid of and thinks of and is paranoid about as he lies there alone on his pillow night after night. That's what keeps him awake at night. I am trying to preserve a kingdom that I have already lost. I pretend I'm a king, but I'm just a coward who is so unwilling to admit defeat that I will continue fighting God until the day I die. And David sees this. And takes pity on him. How can you hate a person like that? It's pitiful. This is what we should see when we see politicians on the news. This is what we should experience when we enter our workplace or we sit across from that relative at our family reunion. When we encounter godless people in the world, people who are hardened in sin, who want to celebrate their sinful lifestyles and practices, who even those who are remorseless about the most grave wickedness in their life, we shouldn't get all red-faced and angry and hateful towards them. It should move us to great pity. That even though they know the truth, they're trying so hard to suppress it that the wrath of God is one day coming for them. And yet they continue to go on fighting. 
we should feel sorry for them. Because we know the truth that one day God will vindicate His justice. And that every unjust thing done will be called to account. Every single lawbreaker will one day stand in the courtroom of God. Imagine how exposed they will feel on that day. Imagine the great record of death that stands against Saul. 1 Samuel reads like a big long list of every sin Saul ever committed. And it's only going to get longer as the book continues. But do you know what, friend? There is a list as plain as the words are on this page of every sin that you have committed in your life. And it is there in the presence of God. And he knows every single one of them. And you may decide to fight that truth until the day you die. But you will stand one day. And God will serve as judge. And that book will be open. And every sin on that page will be read off. And you will be put to death for, any, for fighting against the Lord in a battle you cannot win. For disobeying and waging war against the God of heaven all of your life. But you know what the good news of the gospel is? It doesn't have to be that way. During his ministry, Jesus tells a parable about a servant who owed a great debt to a king. And on the day of judgment, he began to drag his servants into his courtroom and the books were opened. And under this man's name... It was just debt after debt after debt after debt, adding up to more than a million days' wages. Jesus says that servant fell on his knees and began to plead. And it was this pitiful scene where he's saying, just give me some time, I'll pay you back. And the king looked down on this sad display and Jesus says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Just like that. Forgiven. Moved by what? By his great arguments? By his standing up for himself and showing and vindicating why actually these things were all justified? No. Simply by, moved by a heart of pity. If you will plead with the Lord God for mercy, believe that he will give it. If you'll ask him for forgiveness, he will erase all of that debt. That's why Jesus came. Do you know that? Colossians says that he cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what Jesus does is he takes that page of all of your sin, he rips it out of God's book, nails it to the cross, and it stays there forever. So that if you have repented and believed in him the day you appear before God and he turns to your page, it's not there. There's no sin left. And God will declare you not guilty. Because he was moved with pity. So that his son could die in your place. Will you continue hard-hearted against this kind of God? We have such pity even on his enemies. A God who feels sorry for us even when we are so rebellious and wicked and ungrateful at all of our second and third and fourth and fifth and hundredth 
second chances. Won't you lay down your weapons? Won't you stop fighting? Won't you admit defeat? Feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning and trust your cause to the Lord that He's a God who fights on behalf of poor sinners moved simply by His great pity for us. That He has already done everything necessary for all of your sins to be forgiven. Jesus has died, has been raised, and is now waiting to receive you. Brothers and sisters, let us heed the conviction of the Spirit and trust yourself to the Lord. And let us be those who have pity on our enemies because God has on us. No more cutting corners. Let us repent and believe today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being such a great God. That while we were still sinners, while we were still rebels, while we were still lawless and disobedient children, Christ died for us. God, I pray if there's anyone here who's fighting a battle with you, one they will not win, I pray they would surrender today. They would trust your promise that you are forgiving God. And they would receive your forgiveness forever. In Jesus' name we all trust and pray. Amen.